The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and we're here with our very special guest, Dr. Doreen Grampichet for Ask Dr. Doreen. We're so thrilled to be here with you and live this wonderful Wednesday morning on the 3rd of January, uh, 2021. Can you believe that we're already in February? February. It's crazy. Uh, but thrilled that we are here with you and Dr. Grampichet is here and she's ready to start answering questions for you guys. Let's really quickly go through some of the places that you might be watching us. Right now, we are live on Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and Twitter, as well as a bunch of other sites we are live on uh, now that we, we've just joined a bunch more places. So uh, very excited to be live in more places. And we want to encourage you, wherever you're watching us live, you are connected so that if you write in the chat from that platform, it comes right through to us so that Dr. Grampichet and I can see your questions. We're going to try to answer as many questions as we can. Please be patient. We we don't ever, good morning, mama. Um, we don't, and I'm going to get to your question in just a second, but we, we are not going to be able to get to all the questions, but we're going to do our level best to get to as many as we possibly can. Good morning, Bonnie. And... Um, if you're watching us later, uh, later in the day or later in the week or the year or the decade, uh, whatever, the century, uh, you might be watching us on any of the places that you get your podcasts. We're on all of them. If, if, that, if you find that that is not true, please alert us because we believe that we are now on all platforms where you can get your podcast and download us for free. And I'm very excited that we're still able to bring that to you, free download of all of our podcasts. Please visit our website, autism-live.com, to, uh, if you're, when you're watching in podcasts, you can, uh, you can leave chats in there for us. In fact, the starter questions that we have are things that were left in the chat on our website, and we appreciate you writing in there. But also when you're there, take a look at all the different videos that you can find. You can search topics. You can search all of the Ask Dr. Doreen's. We've been doing this show now. This is our 10th year, um, which is like crazy, right? So uh, super exciting to, to bring you that level of uh, library. Dr. Grampichet, welcome. I've over-talked you, but welcome. And we're so thrilled to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Shannon. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back. Uh, we were not able to do a few shows over the last few months, but it's uh, really lovely to be back and seeing all the questions popping up. And thanks so much, everyone. <laughs> yes, I really love it. Uh, we're saying good morning to Just May, and we're saying good morning to Christina. And Mama, I am going to get to your question in just a second. Uh, I want to, though, you alerted me to something, Dr. Grampichet, the other day that um, the peers uh, group is getting ready to start 
uh, some new classes online that are going to be open to people around the world. We want to get the word out and tell people that if you are interested in having your child uh, do the peers program, which we absolutely love, and, and it's a great program. Uh, it teaches social skills. Uh, they're starting a new program. So later on the show, I'm going to give you where you need to go for that. Make sure that you stay tuned for that. Uh, okay. So I want to jump in really quickly, Dr. Grampiche, with a question that was sent to us through uh, during the week. Uh, Abigail wants to know, hi, my son just turned three years old. He has Denver, which I believe is the Denver early start model, but only 12 hours a week. And we can tell it's not enough. If we start now with 30 hours a week, um, that now that he's three, will he still have a chance to get, and they, their phrase is to get out of the spectrum? Um, so uh, do you want to talk about 12 yeah. hours versus 30 hours? Yes, and I also want to talk about the Denver model a little bit. Um, so I just want uh, the person who wrote in and, and all of our viewers to understand that uh, the Denver model is not the pure ABA model. Uh, the Denver model was developed uh, in the last, uh, I'd say, decade, and it is, um, and it was later uh, kind of uh, stated that it is <clears throat> one of the ABA models. I'm not sure that I would agree with that. Um, there are aspects to the Denver model that are behavioral in nature, but I don't know that it meets all the criteria to be defined as ABA. Um, and <clears throat> so it's kind of important. The reason that's important is that uh, if you're doing the Denver model and it's working for your child, wonderful. But I don't want you to think that you are doing a pure ABA program. It's a, it's very different. And um, all the studies you have to realize, because this parent wrote and said, you know, if I increase my hours, will it get my child out of the diagnosis? And you have to realize that all the studies that showed recovery from the diagnosis or losing symptoms of the diagnosis had to do with pure ABA models and they were done uh, all the way back to the 80s, right? So 87 was the first study. And then after that, there were replications that occurred in the 90s and all the way through, I think our replication or um, recovery study was in the late 90s. And I'm not sure uh, if the Denver model has any kind of study published that shows actual recovery. In other words, that their the intensity and their model was focused on enough symptoms that it resulted in the individual losing their diagnosis. I don't think that happened. I know that the Denver model does have a lot of research behind it to show that it is effective, uh, but I don't know uh, if it ever resulted in recovery. So that's something important for, for you as a parent to decide. Now, if you were doing a pure kind of more ABA focused model, that means if it was something like discrete trial merged with natural environment training, that type of model, I would say, yes, increasing hours definitely makes a huge difference. In fact, hours are the number one, uh, they're kind of like the prescription, the dosage. Uh, has to do with hours, and it is uh, a huge difference. I mean, there are a lot of factors that make a difference, but hours are definitely the number one factor. Okay, uh, so I hope that for for that parent, um, you know, that you will take that and write us another question. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to get to uh, the question that I said we would get to that uh, Mama wrote in. Uh, wanting to know how to deal with depression. My son, autistic, 10 years old, is most of the time depressed. How can I deal with this? Yeah. So, you know, when I first read the question, how to deal with depression, I thought you might be referring to yourself as a parent, because a lot of our parents go through that. And that is honestly harder to deal with than if you are dealing with a 10-year-old. 
And the reason is that, uh, so I was happy when I saw the second question, which is like, you're, you're asking about your son. So when it comes to children, unfortunately, their lives are a little bit less burdened, I guess, than ours. Um, and they have fewer responsibilities and, it's, and the whole process is just simpler when it's a 10 year old. So uh, what you have to do is, and, and this is a good exercise for anyone, not, not just an individual who thinks their child is depressed, but anyone, should, everyone, every parent should, should do this because it's very uh, helpful to have an idea of what are the things that are rewarding and or not rewarding in our children's lives, right? So um, you start with just kind of identifying what are the things that your child uh, enjoys, right? So, and we call those obviously reinforcers. There's, uh, we could send you or you could look online and there's, uh, reinforcement inventories online and these are important because there's things on there that you wouldn't even think of right so you might think for instance that uh you know only food or only praise or that sort of stuff but there's a million things that are rewarding to our children and it's important to think about those things uh, for example, just being left alone is rewarding or just being given an opportunity to have a quiet time or those types of things. So uh, you establish a list of what are the things that are rewarding and then you establish a list of things that are that are difficult. So what are the things that are too demanding or cause a lot of uh, like stress for my child or it's difficult for my child to do these things? or they make my child not feel good about himself, right? So uh, maybe they could be things like, uh, I, I don't know, his language lessons, his math uh, homework, uh, just spending time with other people because it's so loud, spending time with children because they might not understand him and he might feel left out. So all the things that are negative, right? And then uh, do a schedule of his week and figure out when are the things that are happening, like what's going on in his life, write his entire schedule and which one, and then like put a plus or a minus next to the activities, right? So like, you know, he wakes up, uh, that's okay. He, that's not too negative an experience for him because he has breakfast, right? And that's maybe a reward. So that's a plus. But then right after that, he has to do homework and maybe that's a minus or he has to go to school or whatever it is, depending on where you are in the world. So try to identify the things that are not pleasant and the things that are pleasant. And so the days and, and whenever you have an activity that is demanding or makes him feel not so good about himself, stressful, confusing, hard, um, embarrassing, whatever it is that's negative, follow it with one of those rewards that you listed the other day on, on the other list, right? So you have these, you know, so he has a very demanding math program or whatever. So I want to make sure that on the days that he has math right after that, he gets 20 minutes, 30 minutes of one of these things that was rewarding to him, like playing on the computer or running outside or whatever it is. So what you're doing is you're reorganizing his daily schedule in a way that it becomes fair. And I always say that because a lot of times as parents or as teachers, we're very focused on, I have a limited time. I got to teach this thing. I got to make him change in that way. I have to you know, he needs to be toilet trained. He needs to be talking. He needs to be socializing. He needs all this stuff, right? And we don't realize that it all adds up and it becomes overwhelming for the child. And so it's really, really important to put it down on paper and from his perspective, determine which is rewarding and which is demanding or difficult and then balance the day and balance the week and make sure that there's a lot of reward. Now, once you've balanced it, go back and add 10% more reinforcers, like increase the reward, make it so that your child is enjoying uh, every moment, because I promise you, they will learn a lot more when they're happy, when they're 
uh, have something to work towards. Now, a lot of our kids will also need, I mean, everything I said is simpler said than done, I guess. So a lot of our kids will need uh, visual reminders of these things that if you work hard for the next 30 minutes, here's a timer, we're going to get this reward. Here's a picture of it. Um, somehow visually so that they know what they're working towards. Because remember, our kids don't necessarily have the same intrinsic self-rewarding system that are, that other kids do, right? They don't work in order to make you proud because making you proud is their number one reward. That isn't necessarily the case with a lot of our kids. It is with some of our kids. But other kids need other types of rewards. So I think that's that's the best way to get your child out of depression is to kind of make their life a little bit more rewarding in whatever way you can. In fact, that's that holds true for all of us, right? But we just get very confused when we're talking about ourselves. It's hard to balance our own lives. And we have so many uh, responsibilities and burdens, I guess, that it's hard to also add in rewards. And I think COVID has just made it harder because a oh. lot of the things that we could default to, to, to reward ourselves and to reward our kids aren't available right now. So I think that that's made it harder, but it's also, I don't know about everybody else, but it's made me more mindful about it that, yeah. oh my gosh, like what else can we do? And we almost, you know, we have to schedule it. Yeah. We have to, we have to schedule that. Otherwise, um, you know, it's hard for us. Now, I do, I do also, Shannon, want to point out, I'm a big believer, you know, when you study all the literature on things like depression and anxiety, you learn that there are always two ways to handle these types of issues. One is through biological means and one is through behavioral means or cognitive behavioral means. And the studies all indicate that the most successful group are the people who do both. So you can be someone who is doing all of these behavioral things that I mentioned and your child continues to feel depressed. It's time for you to consult with a psychiatrist or even just his uh, developmental pediatrician or someone because there's a whole nother side to this, which is the biology of depression and anxiety. And uh, chemically, we become imbalanced and uh, simply because our environment is not providing to us the nutrients we need for our neurotransmitters <laughs> to function correctly. And it's, it's, the truth is, you know, in the old days, like when, when there was enough bacteria in our environment, we all had very healthy guts and our neurotransmitter levels were functioning great and we had enough serotonin enough dopamine, enough norepinephrine that we would never get depressed or anxious or fewer people did. And so uh, that has changed. And we currently have a lot of people, and as Shannon said, COVID was not an easy period. A lot of people are going through depression. And uh, aside from all these behavioral or cognitive behavioral methodologies, um, there are. I am a very strong supporter of medications that help with depression and anxiety. Uh, there are many medications. The primary group obviously is the serotonin or norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So SSRIs or SNRIs. And they are very, very helpful. And they're not, this is not something scary, uh, folks, honestly, because all these medications do is they allow your body to uh, absorb the your own uh, neurotransmitters a little bit better. So, uh, you know, those medications also help uh, just kind of lighten the load when it comes to what we're all going through in life right now. Have you ever seen, there's a video that they've been able to, with, a, with an incredible microscope, they've been able to look at, and it looks like this alien life form that's a ball that has legs, and it looks like it's dragging something. And what it actually is, is that process that you were just describing. And it's literally your body dragging something. And they say, this is what happiness looks like, is when your body is able to transmit this particular, whatever that thing is transmitting, 
Um, that is what creates happiness. It's this crazy video. I, um, I love, I could watch it forever, but to look at it and go, oh, that's what happiness actually looks like. Uh, incredible. Uh, the question that came in, and I don't know, you may have already answered it, but Christina B wants to know is, will, will the answer that you're giving to mama for depression, does that also work for anxiety? And I, and you said it, 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 that you included anxiety. So is that, is that sort of a carte blanche? Yeah, so in terms of <clears throat> medication, the medication for anxiety and depression is the same thing. It's exactly that we use antidepressants for anxiety. So they're the exact same medication. But um, in terms of behavioral uh, techniques, there are other things you can do behaviorally for anxiety. Obviously, when our environment is a little bit more rewarding, we tend to have less anxiety. But anxiety is a little bit different. It has more to do with apprehension. It has to do with, uh, you know, fear. Uh, whereas depression has to do more with hopelessness. And so fear is, a. there are antecedent modifications, I guess, that you could put in place that would assist the individual with their fear. And those are things like, uh, you know, repetition, practice, getting the individual, you know, we always talk about our kids have a hard time with transitions, right? So as you know, Shannon, there are lots and lots of ways that we help our children transition from one situation to another. Why do we do that? Because we don't want them to have anxiety. We don't want to flood them with something that is fearful to them or overwhelming to them. And so with anxiety, it's a lot about that. It's a lot about, again, you can go through the child's uh, in particular uh, kind of schedule, daily schedule, and see and identify, if, you're, if you can, identify the situations that cause fear in the child, that cause sort of, uh, I will not succeed at this, and practice those situations uh, ahead of time. This is why uh, a lot of times parents will ask me, well, why shouldn't I put my child in school? It'll help them with social skills. And I tell them it's, it will help them if they're, they've already learned all the skills necessary so that when they're put in that situation, it doesn't become an anxiety provoking and uh, failing type of situation. So with anxiety, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, rehearsal, practice, uh, just being able to identify that you will be good enough at this activity. And then uh, there's there are also kind of exercises that we do when our kids are going through anxiety, when they're just beginning to, we help them identify their own physical uh, responses to anxiety, like uh, heartbeats or my, my, you know, I'm starting to feel my own heartbeat, I'm starting to get nervous. And, and then we teach them exercises to help control that, like breathing and counting, uh, like going to a peaceful place and playing music, like doing some other activity that is much, you know, much more comforting. Uh, so there's just a little bit of different techniques for to deal with anxiety. There we go. Uh, I want to get Bonnie wants to know my seven-year-old son clenches his jaw like an underbite. He does this like it is him stimming. I keep telling him to close his mouth correctly and he does it, but how to make him aware because his lips are getting dry. And I imagine that this can cause pain in his jaw. Yeah. So that's a, it's a, it's going to be a little bit difficult and I don't want to ignore that there might be some other type of uh biological physical issue there so i would actually uh, try to uh, meet with his doctor his pediatrician first of all and make sure that there's nothing else going on there sometimes uh our kids have slight tics that involve like pressing their jaw sometimes this nerve which is called the tri trigeminal nerve uh, if, when they have too much stress or anxiety, as we were talking about, they will clench this because the pressure here uh, makes them, you know, it just becomes a habit of pressing this and, and making sure that it's tensed. Uh, so those are things that you should really identify if there's something else going on and talk to the pediatrician and make sure that uh, if there is a, a medication or something that you need there to help with that, you've taken care of that. That 
aside, behaviorally, we would probably, A, as always, identify the function. It's very possible that the function is automatic in this case, but you should identify the function. So in other words, when does it happen? What are the antecedents to it happening? Does it happen uh, like when you ask him a question and he doesn't want to respond to it? So that would be sort of an escape-maintained behavior. Does it happen just when he's on his own, which is like a tick, which is much more automatic in nature? Identify the function. When you identify the function, it always helps you figure out what to do next. If it is an automatic function and it is a stimulation that he's feeling in his jaw that he enjoys, you're going to have to replace that. And what can you replace it with? I can tell you that we have done uh, studies that where we've replaced this type of behavior with gum chewing. So what you do is you essentially would give the child, you teach him how to chew gum. And because during that time, he's moving his jaw and putting enough pressure on his jaw that if he doesn't have gum, the duration of time when he has the gum, he's doing it. That's fine. And it's appropriate because he's chewing gum. But when he spits out the gum, then you don't allow it to happen. So you essentially uh, correlate the two activities. So he's, when he's chewing, he's able to do it. When he's not, he's calm. And those are some, and by the way, if you look online, if you do identify that it's kind of more a tick and, and, you know, he's aware of it, but it's very hard for him to control it, then there's a lot of different types of exercises for individuals who want to get control over these, uh, these kind of muscular ticks. And they can, uh, and just focusing on it uh, for durations of time. So you will, for instance, uh, tell him we're going to count to five and you can't do it. So we'll count to five. That'll be his baseline. And then next time you will uh, have him keep his jaw calm up to six, up to 10, up to 20. And then you set a timer and you gradually start to increase that. And when you when he feels that he can no longer keep his jaw calm is when he asks for gum. And now he gets a, a typical way of being able to exercise his jaw. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, you're on mute. I said, I said, thank you. I said, very, very cool. Uh, Christina would like to know, how can I deal with when my son is in his head to bring him back to interact with us? Telehealth is difficult sometimes regaining his attention. Any suggestions? Yeah, it's very hard. It, it, you're right. Those are the types of things that make it harder uh, with telehealth, absolutely. Um, you know, everything we do increases with Reinforcer, right? So what I would do is I, I would just start with a very basic exercise of when you, when I call your name, you need to stop what you're doing, look at me and attend. Um, you know, answer my question or do whatever I'm asking, and I will now reward you. And that is your goal. So make sure that you start with a very, very basic request, uh, which is I'm going to call your name. So, you know, Shannon, and all I want from Shannon is to look at me. And I'm going to reward that with a highly rewarding stimulus. Maybe I will give Shannon a uh, M&M or a cookie or something that she wants just for stopping what she's doing and looking at me. Then a week from now, I will add to that. And I will basically, uh, sorry, I got distracted with the background noise. But, um, and then I will basically start to increase what I require. So I will now ask Shannon to stop, look at me, and also say, yes, mom, or whatever it is. And then I will give the reward. And so you bring it back down to the basic core of what you want, and then you gradually work your way back to the natural environment, uh, which is, you know, ultimately your goal is uh, that when you ask your child to, to respond, they stop whatever they're doing, and they look at you, and they respond, and then they go back to what they were doing. But what you need to do is start with the very core, easy kind of antecedent behavior consequence model, reward that, and then grow it back again. 
Wonderful. And that is the key to everything, that reward, right? Uh, I love it. Uh, so Parker wants to know, what is y'all's thought on, I didn't realize you were Southern Parker, because uh, but he wrote out y'all's. What is y'all's thoughts on the COVID vaccine? There's a lot of hesitancy, including from my own parents, some due to the Wakefield paper, some due to other things. Do you all recommend it? Well, it is definitely too soon, uh, Parker. So the part, so the COVID vaccine has absolutely nothing at all to do with prior uh, papers or vaccines. Nothing at all. In fact, this vaccine, uh, we have never built anything that even slightly resembles how this vaccine works. It's the very first time that we've ever produced an mRNA vaccine. And this is kind of important because prior vaccines, like the, you referred to Wakefield, whose paper was on the uh, MMR, and he was very particularly involved with the measles vaccine. But, uh, you know, and prior other vaccines like the DTaP or even polio or any of these types of vaccines all have to do with giving the body a very, very small amount of the, the disease so that the body reacts to it and then builds antibodies towards that disease. So when we're talking about mumps, you are getting a tiny amount of mumps, actually, when you're given the MMR vaccine and mumps, measles, or, and rubella all together, and your body then builds antibodies. You react to it, right? And then your body, because it's such a tiny bit, your body conquers that. That is, uh, you know, historically has been very, very difficult for a lot of people in the world of autism because there are a lot of individuals and there's quite a little bit of, of evidence actually that uh, the vaccines did cause injury to some individuals, right? If that didn't exist, we wouldn't have all of these families who are getting uh, actually money for the damage that was made to their children. So. I actually believe that there are some children who did get injured with one vaccine or another simply because their immune system was not able to fight the vaccine in a way that it produced antibodies and was therefore successful at fighting. In fact, their immune system was injured by it. So um, that is the past. This is a different type of vaccine. We know nothing about what this vaccine does. This vaccine is an mRNA vaccine. That means you're not getting a small amount of the COVID virus, of the corona, uh, coronavirus at all. What you're getting is a messenger RNA, which it goes into your genetic structure and modifies your genetic structure so that you start producing antibodies. It is not a reaction to an external piece of the virus. It is a message. It's a message to your body saying, can you please produce some, some antibodies to this, uh, uh, to this particular virus? So we don't know how this vaccine will affect us long-term, anyone, even people with a very, very healthy immune system. We don't know how it will affect us genetically. We know nothing about it. It was just produced, right? So, but please don't let it, it definitely is, is in a different ball game than the past vaccines. Uh, that's important to understand because the way that it works is very different. Will this current way that it works have a positive or negative effect long-term? We just don't know. Uh, the question to balance it with, I think, for parents is, you know, this is an un unknown. We don't know if the vaccine, what it will do in the long term, it's unknown. What we do know is that in the short term, it prevents uh, at a very high percentage, uh, your likelihood of catching uh, this particular coronavirus, right? So COVID-19, you will at least be safe from that. So what are the harms of COVID-19 and we don't know everything there is to know there either, but we are one year ahead at least, right? People started catching this in the uh, beginning of 2020. 
And one year ahead, what the literature shows so far is that different populations will get over it at different lengths. We don't know exactly. We know that the more ill you are when you get it, the higher risk um, of, of not overcoming it. One of the things that we don't know is uh, what are the long-term issues if you've overcome COVID? Um, and there's a lot of literature on this developing now. It just hasn't been long enough. But there is a little bit of research showing that there might be some long-term uh, deficits or things that we have to overcome. Mental deficits, like it does impact memory, it does impact uh, uh, some of the kind of the speed of set shifting in your brain, those types of things. But those are things that potentially could also improve with time. We just don't know. So it's, it's this, over, you know, it's two unknowns right now. And I think a lot of people are choosing one or the other. It's kind of like, well, I guess I'll, I'll risk it. And I'm also willing to stay at home and protect myself as much as I can. I prefer to do this. And others are saying, I'm losing my mind. I have, I'm depressed. My family's depressed. I got to get out there. Um, I have a relatively decent immune system. I'm going to go out there and do it because I need to go back to life. And so these are personal choices that, that everybody has to make. And it's very hard because there's no uh, real literature there enough. It's a very new thing we're dealing with. Yes, and I'm very fond of reminding everybody that, you know, we should all be educating ourselves. And it's so wonderful to hear an expert like Dr. Grant Shea talk about it. But at this moment in time on January 3rd, or excuse me, February 3rd in 2021, there is no vaccine that the FDA has approved for children. So, you know, so we're still in a holding pattern waiting to hear if, um, now I, I realize that, you know, we're, people are looking at it, the parents and we have adults uh, both on and off the spectrum who are asking this question, but I just, I, I like to keep pointing that out. I also want to point out, because I, you know, so that we don't get mail that, uh, you know, even with all the things that you said, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I don't, I certainly don't consider myself anti-vaccine. I think people, when you have questions, people love to go, boom, you're anti-vaccine. And I think that we have to move away from that kind of black and white thinking. I think everyone is entitled to have questions and it doesn't mean that you are anti-vaccine. Right. Uh, uh, vaccines are very important, and you know I I am thrilled that they're that they're working so hard on the vaccines, and there are a number of vaccines, and they are not all uh, equal and even. Um, they do different things, and you know are one shot, two shot, and the AstraZeneca one is vastly different. But we don't have that in the United States yet. It it is on the old model. I didn't realize this until the other night. Uh, when I was doing research, the AstraZeneca is on the old model, model of vaccines that you were talking about, um, but they only have that in Europe right now. It's not approved here in the United States until <laughs> potentially April. <clears throat> so uh, it's interesting, but just to be clear, uh, you know, we're not anti-vaccine. We're smart people asking smart questions. Uh, and and, I, <laughs> and I, I, I'm only speaking for myself. Um, but anyway, uh, I want to get to our next question here. Actually, I really, I'm, I'm so bad. I need to get to this question. I can't believe I didn't get to this before. Hello, ladies. I would like to ask for help with my son who just a few weeks ago started having intense behaviors, which include doing rituals like tapping on things, going back to step on the floor, running towards the door of the house, running to the kitchen wall. He's also crying out of nowhere, screaming, asking for help, saying things like, don't take me and I don't want to die. When my husband or myself try to stop him from doing some of the rituals, he becomes aggressive towards us or himself. I'm not sure where all this behavior came from, but it all started around Christmas time. Prior to the behavior starting, he had a dental procedure to remove two baby teeth that were not coming out on their own and adult teeth were already coming in. The experience was traumatic. Um, I lost my place. Uh, they had to strap him down because he was trying to hit. He had never had a procedure like that done before. The whole time from start to finish, he cried, screamed, and asked for help. It was the most traumatizing day, I swear. I feel like all these behaviors started the day after the dentist. 
He has never had such rigid behaviors before. He seems scared and super anxious. It almost looks like he has panic attacks a few times a day. I asked him the other day after he had somewhat calmed down why he was squeezing his head. And he replied that he heard a chin chin type of sound and that he wanted to touch his brain. He also added that he couldn't put his body back together and that there were a lot of sick people dying. Please help. Help me. This is a really terrible seeing him. He looks like he's so lost and almost like he can't control his body or his brain. Please, I don't know how to help him. And I don't know how much longer I can see him like this. Um, thank you so much. And she did leave her phone number. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So this is when you first started describing some of the things that he's doing, like running back and forth and so on, I started writing down for myself anxiety behaviors. And this is more than just normal anxiety. This is trauma. So he experienced trauma, as you mentioned. And what he's experiencing now is PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. Very clear. You described PTSD completely. I mean, exactly. And, you know, different people have different, uh, I guess, uh, uh, levels that they can tolerate, tolerance levels, right? And, and someone might go to war in Vietnam and come back and not have PTSD, and someone else might develop PTSD from having a dental procedure, especially when it's a child who doesn't quite understand what is going on. And it's a painful and maybe they can't express that or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. And please don't blame yourself for that. You did what was right and you had to get him through this because we all know that dental pain in the long run is also very, very traumatic. So what you did was fine. Where we are now is PTSD and we have to deal with it. And with PTSD, the problem is that it is so severe that oftentimes uh, initially, behavioral stuff doesn't work all that well because the individual is just traumatized, right? And they're not open to, to receiving. So it's kind of like if I was to tell you, you know, try to reward him more, uh, it, it might work and it might not because at this point he is so uh, traumatized that he's just... Uh, doing all of these things. And by the way, you know, anxiety behavior or stuff that we do post-trauma is all protective. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. It does, it's not logical, but it's what our body and our brain does in order to protect itself. So like people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, for instance, they wash their hands as an example 50 times. It's not logical because you just washed your hands a minute ago, right? But it is the, the process of what goes on in the brain, the compulsion is calming. And so with your child running back and forth, that compulsion is calming. Uh, the, these types of illogical, repetitive behaviors allow the individual to feel like they have control over the situation and by doing this thing, they're, they're getting control over it. They're going to be okay. They're going to be safe. And so that's the, that's the psychology of it. Just understand that it's, pr it's pretty hard for you to see these things, but that's what it is. is. Even if he's hurting himself or hitting or scratching or whatever it is, it's I want to get control over whatever this feeling is. And this is one way that I can get control over it, okay? So what do we do? We basically go back and you will start with getting medication. Um, and once you get medication, that will help him calm down. And again, we're talking about anxiety medication. Um, and this does take a couple of weeks, but it's relatively, you could even get you know, your, your pediatrician might actually even be willing to give you, uh, um, what is it, a, a panic type medication. So these are medications that are usually not used a lot with children, but in trauma situations they are. And what they do is they give you, uh, it, it calms you almost within 15 minutes, right? 
it's not intense, but it calms you in, in very quickly so that you're not panicking. Now, uh, it might also make the child a little bit uh, tired, let's say. But regardless, once you have calmed the child, then that's where you do a lot of the activities. Like for instance, you will do now, you will take a look and see, can you, let me ask you as a parent, can you um, segment his day and observe when these behaviors are happening more? Are they happening equally across the entire day? In which case we will now need to uh, put in a lot more calming and rewarding activities throughout his day? Or are these behaviors happening at certain times of the day? Perhaps when he thinks you're about to take him out. Uh, perhaps it's when uh, he thinks that you are, you know, I don't know, it's, it's the afternoon and he's tired. Maybe he's not sleeping. Like when, it, when are these behaviors occurring more? And what you do is you essentially start to uh, completely alter his entire day. So you'll start with uh, just, I'm going to do, we're going to have Disneyland every day. <laughs> you know, we're going to do only things that are super, super, super fun and positive for him. Things that he would, during which he would never hit his head or do any of these other things. We're going to have fun. So, now we're having an absolutely fun day. That's good, but how long can I keep this up? Don't worry about it. You'll keep it up and you'll gradually change it back to normal. But the bottom line is he went through trauma. So right now you have to make everything turn positive again before you can gradually go back to just normal routine. So, you know, behaviorally, that's the way to go. Uh, you start with a fully, fully reward-enriched schedule, and you gradually reintroduce demands, uh, very gradually, so that he can handle it. That's the behavioral. In terms of the, uh, in terms of the uh, medical, um, you know, aside from looking at uh, things that would help anxiety, you also want to, by the way, track his sleep because his sleep might have been altered. And if your sleep is reduced, then you're gonna have more anxiety during the day as well. So these are uh, some pointers, but it is, trauma is a very odd thing and getting over it takes a little bit of time. And she has written in and said um, that she spoke with his pediatrician and they said they couldn't uh, prescribe anything for him. And that she did start writing down in a notebook since January 3rd and the behaviors are happening at different times and places. My question for you, Dr. Grampy-Shea, is that I've heard you talk about EFT tapping for anxiety and trauma before, but I don't know like what, I don't know how old this child is and I don't know if that's something, I've actually looked into having uh, an EFT tapping person come and talk with us on the show about what this would be like for kids on the spectrum, but I don't know at what age, I, and I don't know if this is a fair question for you, if you know, but it, like at what age can that be effective for a child with trauma? Yeah, it's hard, Shannon. Uh, tapping exercises are very useful and have been shown, uh, you know, yeah, uh, eye movement desensitization has been shown to be very effective for, uh, let's say, uh, war veterans who come back with trauma. But I've done this. I've, I've not only studied it, but I've also done it. And I don't see it working with our kids that much because... It's a, um, first of all, you have to memorize a series of t locations and it's very self-induced. It's not something that someone else can do for you, uh, but you need, it, 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 what it involves, it's similar to uh, uh, desensitization that we do for phobias or, or those types of things. But with, with systematic desensitization processes, you basically are pairing a phobic type of stimulus uh, or you know gradual uh, graduations i guess to that stimulus so like a picture of the stimulus and experience etc to a calming experience you pair them 
So you're, you're pairing things like relaxation and breathing to stimuli that are progressively more and more scary, okay? And that way you kind of get over the phobic element. With tapping, you're pairing the tapping to the to the mental activity of the trauma. So it would involve the you being able to tell the child, I want you to remember the dental experience and bring it back up while you do while you do tapping. And I don't, from what I'm reading, I don't see that that is something that the child would be capable of. Maybe they are. And in which case, we would be happy to help you learn more about tapping. Um, I do think that it, be, it, it seems very overwhelming because it's sudden, extreme, and it appears to be all day or at different times of the day. And I would say uh, separate the day so that you are not dealing with 24 hours of, of just chaos. You're dealing with maybe five incidents and then you deal with each one okay so don't let it overwhelm you and just separate the day figure out what are the antecedents to each uh, episode and then we can work with you to try to figure out how do we modify the antecedents and the consequences of each episode so that it won't happen as much or that so that the child finds ways to calm themselves Okay. Hey, we've got some folks who are watching us today on Vaughn Live for the first time. So we want to say hello to them. And one of them has written in and said, I wish I knew how to handle my brother. Even after many years, I still don't know how to deal with his, uh, to prevent his anger bursts. He is now in his 60s and still unpredictable, has a very short fuse. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if uh, the brother has a diagnosis of any kind. I guess it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you, because, you know, the basis of it is behaviors that are rewarded increase and maintain. They continue. Um, and if we want a behavior to stay, we pay attention to it, we give in to it, we allow it to be effective. And if we want a behavior to uh, be eliminated, to, to discontinue, then we have to make sure that it is not getting attention, that it is not getting what the individual wanted by doing the behavior. Um, and that is the, the most important thing. And when you look at someone who's 60, my initial reaction is to think that by losing his temper, he has managed to get what he wants in the world. So whenever he lost his temper, people gave in and they gave him what he wanted. So from his perspective, he learned this is a very effective mode of communicating with the world. And it's very hard when someone is 60 because not only is this behavior ingrained, but it is also... Uh, so, and so, and when, when a behavior has become a habit like that for so many years, it's harder to change. Um, but it is also very difficult because there's many people interacting with this individual. And even if you were to change and not give in, uh, others might still be afraid and give in. So I think it starts by getting together with all the people who are as frustrated as you are. I guess all the people who are in his life who are experiencing the same level of frustration and saying, hey, this type of uh, tantruming has to end. We can't, we can't tolerate this anymore. And then you all kind of get together and you, you sit down and all say, yes, first of all, we all want really, we want this to change. And then what you do is you do a functional behavior assessment and you say, well, it looks like he tantrums or has these negative behaviors under these conditions, like whenever we ask him to do something, whenever he doesn't want to do something, whenever he wants access to something, it's always going to be one of those things, right? He wants access to something. He wants to avoid something. He wants attention. So those are very basic 
things and you list the function you list okay like it's it's maybe one of these or it's all of these or most of the time it's because he wants to avoid something let's say and then what you have to do is everyone has to agree that you're not going to let that communication be effective anymore so when he tantrums he will not get to what he wants anymore it's just that simple when he tantrums or is aggressive or whatever it is we're just going to ignore it he's not going to get his way anymore instead we're going to give him a different out we're going to say hey if you don't want to do this activity all you have to do is just say i don't want to really do this right now vocalize it or all you have to if he's non-vocal i don't know then all you have to do is maybe give us a sign and, and um, just a symbol that shows that he does he wants time out something like that a more appropriate way of communicating and that's what it's all about and that's what ABA is all about really but it is it's it's not an easy task and when you're trying to change the behavior of someone older I would really recommend that you get together with an expert in ABA, which would be a board certified behavior analyst, um, and you get them to help you identify the function, to help you write out a kind of treatment plan that, that the entire family can, can do together. Okay, I think we have time to squeeze in one last little question. Just May says, is it normal for schools to not want to be on board with your child's ABA program. I thought ABA was generalized. They want to do their own thing and I want ABA to be a part of his IEP. Yeah, it's, I don't know what normal is anymore. It's school to school. Some schools are very pro ABA. In fact, they are just like getting better and better. Other schools still don't have any understanding of what ABA even is. Forget about being on board with it. I, uh, I commend you, I think you are right, and it is your right, and it is your child's right to have access to ABA, and I think that you need to call for an IEP and say, I'm sorry, but ABA is the single intervention that has shown to be uh, hugely effective, which is why it's the single intervention that is funded, um, and I need you guys to provide it to me, and uh, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, if they don't provide it to you, it's even better because then you will have the opportunity for to have an arrangement where the school has to pay for an ABA expert to provide it to you. Sometimes schools will say, oh, I have an ABA program and it's not an ABA program at all. So, you know, one step at a time. First, call an IEP and say, I really want ABA in my child's program and then see what they offer you and, and come back and we can talk about it. And just briefly, I just want you to know that uh, my son was in a school for a while who said, oh, in an IEP, you can't dictate the method. You can only dictate what the goals are. You can't dictate the method to us. And they would say, we don't do ABA. And so what we did was we outfoxed them and with the help of CARD, with the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, we stopped using the word ABA and stopped asking for ABA, but we started writing ABA into all of his, his behavior intervention plans that, and, and saying that they had, this is how they had to deal with behavior. So they ended up doing ABA. We just didn't, we just didn't say it was ABA. Um, uh, could you ask Bonnie, I wonder if things have changed now, like that, because ABA is kind of, you know, not only approved by the Surgeon General, but funded, publicly funded yeah. insurance. I wonder if you can request it now, because so much time has passed and we've now concluded that this is the most effective form of I'll ask Bonnie. We have Bonnie back on Monday and I'll make that the first question that we will ask her. And everybody's saying thank you so much for all your help. We want to thank Dr. Grampy Shea for being with us and giving this time and uh we just so appreciate your beautiful mind and that you share what you know with us it's so amazing um and i want to thank all of you for being here and reminding you that if you like and we have we have a video that we'll play now but like us share us tell other people about it we're so glad that we're on more platforms now we're back tomorrow with an amazing young mom who is a social worker and who has a very interesting story to tell about 
what she's been doing in COVID and how it's been changing her life. And I think you're all gonna love this tomorrow. Very uplifting story. And then on Friday, Nancy and I are back with licensed marriage and family therapist, Vince Redman, who's gonna be here. So, so excited that we're able to provide you guys that programming we're gonna be live the rest of the week. Thank you again, Dr. Grampy Shea. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.